people ask me all the time, you know, what, what do you think it is? You know, yeah, what, sure. what is it really? And we're just not there. We're not at a point where we can necessarily draw conclusions on it. Now you, you've, you've said it, it could be ours. It could be someone else's on this planet or, or it could be something else that we haven't identified that is either from here or from somewhere else. At the end of the day, for me, this is very simple. It's either a national security aviation safety issue and we need to deal with that with the mechanisms we have. Or it's something else and we need to have the scientific integrity and the bravery to go look at it and explore it, regardless of the results. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast former Navy fighter pilot, engineer by training, and now founder of Americans for Safer Aerospace, Ryan Graves. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for being here. So we're, we're going to talk about your work around uh, unidentified aerial phenomena uh, and uh, the fact that you are now trying to mainstream a case that I think a lot of Americans are highly interested in. But as a former Navy fighter pilot, how realistic was Top Gun Maverick? Uh, and where does shirtless beach football rank in terms of the bonding activities necessary to build a strong team? I'll say hi to quite high on the last point there. Uh, but, you know, the rest was classified. Uh, but, you know, the movie was pretty realistic. And in fact, um, I know some of the, the active duty Navy pilots that flew a lot of those those filming missions, if you if you will. And a lot of the, um, the tactics that we see executed in there are based off of real mission parameters, uh, having a pre-planned strike and ingressing in a high threat scenario. Uh, and so it was very, very realistic. And I know Top Gun played a hand in, in recommending some of the, uh, the action scenes and the shots, uh, whether we're always that close and whatnot, maybe uh, up for debate, but it was certainly good, good movie, good filming. <laughs> that's, that's great. So how many years were you uh, a fighter pilot? You were an instructor yourself, right? That's correct. I spent a total of about 11 years in the Navy, which is essentially uh, one cycle for uh, a pilot, especially as a fighter pilot, because we have eight years after our training, which is about three years. It makes you sound like a doctor, man, <laughs> in, a, in a good way. You're like a pretty badass. Uh, it's like not, a PhD not, not, in not. flying in a sense. We, um, you know, we go through that three and a half years of training and we officially get winged, but then we go out to the fleet. And once we get to the fleet, we really begin the real training where we learn the real tactics and how to actually employ them with the weapon systems, integrating that into a team combat environment, and then eventually into the, the aircraft carrier combat environment as well. And off we go into a deployment. So, you know, we've really never stopped training or exceeding in that career field. And even after we finish our deployments, we come back to get training for a large force strike commander and things of that nature. So it's a continuous training and learning environment for sure. And and you flew how many missions in the Middle East? I, I didn't count them, uh, to be honest, but I did fly uh, more than I have counted right now between op Operation Inherent Resolve and Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, those are the operations we've had in Afghanistan as well as in the Iraq-Syria area uh, when all the ISIS work was kicking off. Well, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for risking your life. Uh, and thank you now for the case that you're making, which, again, um, I was joking with you before we started the interview that when I was running for president, I told the American people I would come clean about 
Area 51 and whatever the government knew <laughs> about <laughs> extraterrestrials. Um, so you encountered unidentified aerial phenomena at various points during your military career? Certainly. So after our, my first combat deployment, when we came back, we upgraded our radars uh, from the APG-73 to the 79 radar. Uh, just a much better radar, can see more things. And we started noticing things that we weren't seeing just earlier in the day with the other radar. And what we were seeing were just radar contacts that we weren't expecting. Uh, they were typically stationary, uh, 0.0 Mach, uh, and that's stationary uh, in the stream, if you will, of the air. And so we're not expecting anything to be stationary up there unless it's tethered to the ground. And even then, it would be bouncing around. Uh, but these would typically be stationary, and when they were not stationary, they'd travel about 0.6 to 0.8 Mach, uh, which is upwards of about 350 knots. Uh, in either circular patterns or racetrack patterns or just heading out east over the ocean. Eventually, we got close enough where all our sensors inside of our jet, they essentially slew to whatever our radar is looking at. And at this time, we just thought they were radar malfunctions, not physical objects that could uh, hurt our aircraft yet. Sure. Uh, but eventually, we got close enough with our sensor systems to actually make out the IR energy, the infrared energy that was coming off of the, the objects. And so at this point, we had to respect that, you know, there was physically something at that piece of the sky uh, and to, you know, avoid it uh, the best we could. Um, of course, you know, there was an investigatory period where people said, hey, let's go take a look with our eyeballs and, and see what we can find here. And, I, you know, I was one of those people. And it was um, it was interesting. We would have it on the radar. We would have it on then the FLIR system, that IR system. And all that's getting pumped into our visor uh, and tracked to our eyeballs and telling us exactly where to look. And we do this type of merging exercise quite often where we fly up to something and we assess its characteristics, its weapons load out, um, and we begin a dogfight with it. Um, in this case, we would come up to that merge and all our sensors would show us where to look, but then we couldn't see the objects. Um, we turn back around and they would still be there on the radar and on the FLIR. Uh, and that was kind of a status quo for a while until we almost hit one of the objects at the entrance to our working areas. Two aircraft from my squadron were entering the working areas um, side by side. And at a very particular altitude and GPS location is where we enter those working areas. And one of these objects went right between the two aircraft. Uh, and the lead aircraft was able to actually gain tally of it. And he described it as a black cube inside of a clear sphere, about 5 to 15 feet in diameter. When you say gain tally of it, he actually saw it with his own eyes? Correct, with his own eyeballs. And to my knowledge, that was the first time we had seen uh, one of these objects with our own eyes. There's a black cube within a clear sphere. Mm -hmm. And the tips of the cube, best we could assess at that point, were touching inside of that clear sphere. So you're probably friends with the other pilots. When, when you got back and you were saying, hey, what did you see? And he you described this. You guys must have been eager to hear more or flipping out or something along those lines. <laughs> we were moving along a progression, right? We went from radar errors to something physical, but not knowing what they were. But when we saw it physically like that, our first thought, you know, we were never all about UFOs or, or UAPs, as they're called now. That really never entered into our conscience other than something to laugh at. Um, so we always thought there was a very pragmatic explanation if we just had enough information. Um, and at this point, when we physically saw it, like I said, uh, as that cube, we assumed that some, this must have been some kind of strange classified program or drone program that must have gotten too big for its britches and essentially has been operating in a place that they shouldn't have been, perhaps by accident, perhaps not. But either way, 
something had to be done. And due to the nature of this near midair, uh, I mean, we were obligated to file an aviation safety report due to the close proximity. And that's what we did. Uh, we started filing them within the aviation safety hazard reporting system. Um, and that was, again, status quo for the time being. We essentially just stiff-armed them. We tried to avoid them if they were in our working areas, which they're out there pretty much every day in some capacity. Uh, we would just, you know, flex to a different area and do our best to avoid them. What what years uh, were, were this and um, what part of the world? Yeah, so this is right off the coast of uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, and this was in the uh, 2014 to 2015 time frame. You, so you follow the report, but it sounds like it's pretty much common knowledge among pilots that, hey, there are these things out there. They're going to hit your radar in a particular way. Um, they seem like actual objects. Like if you get close, your instruments all start saying, hey, the, the thing's there. And you want to try and avoid them because if you hit one, no one knows what happens. We would assume it would be, I mean, catastrophic to the aircraft. I mean, based off of what we were seeing... Uh, there's no question in our mind that, you know, this would result in loss of aircraft, like if we hit anything of that size out there. I just want to rewind for a second. So you're zooming in from New Hampshire. Uh, did you grow up in, in the New England area? I did. I grew up in central Massachusetts. And when did you know you wanted to be a fighter pilot? I knew I wanted to do that after my junior year in college. Uh, I was doing a mechanical engineering, uh, fire protection engineering five-year program, and I did an internship after my junior year, and I said, I'm not going to like this uh, for the rest of my life. And, you know, it kind of drove me to say, hey, reassess what was valuable to me and what um, was important to me and, you know, how I wanted to live my life, at least in the short term. And um, on the drive back home, because I did that in Atlanta, <laughs> So on the drive back up to Massachusetts, I, I thought about, you know, what was kind of the polar opposite of this? What was the thing that would, you know, motivate me and encourage me regardless of, you know, the semantics of how difficult it was to be? And I thought flying fighters would be an incredible challenge uh, and would have incredible opportunities, whether I, you know, was completely successful or not. Wow. So the time you made that decision and then uh, heading towards the Navy, how many years was it before you wind up? Flying a fighter jet. Yeah. So I actually, on the drive home, I also elected to change my major to aerospace engineering because I thought that would be better for my application. Doubled up on all my courses in my senior year so I could finish with the degree on time. Uh, and then uh, I was accepted as a pilot to the Navy uh, probably about 14 months after I made that decision. Wow. In that meantime, I also went and got private flight training myself. I paid paid for about 30 hours of flight time to see, you know, make sure I liked it and sure I wasn't going to get sick as soon as I got wheels up uh, and just kind of explored the best I could beforehand. Um, and so I came in, you know, I threw myself all the way in to try to get that slot. And I applied just as a pilot because I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get in. So back to then 2014, 2015, you're, you're seeing uh, these unidentified aerial phenomena, you submit a report saying, hey, we almost ran into one of these. Is there any follow-up to that report or like, do, do you get uh, feedback? So those reporting mechanisms within, uh, I'll at least just speak for naval aviation safety, they're not proactive or preventative uh, reporting mechanisms for the vast majority of it. It's more for data tracking purposes over time. 
And so we weren't really expecting anything back, but no, there was nothing back. Um, it was just status quo. Like, you know, we were avoiding them and that was that in 2015, early 2015, we were getting ready to leave our deployment, uh, aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And we began our workup training, which is a pretty intensive six month, uh, training program we go through that involves us living on the boat for, uh, a month and a half or so at a time. And, doing, you know, training, training like we would fight overseas, essentially, uh, off of the aircraft carrier. And so we were still experiencing these objects, and we went down to off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida in 2015, uh, operating off the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And we had, those objects were down there when we got down there. Yeah, additionally, we also recorded additional objects, uh, and those are the videos that have been publicly released by the Department of Defense, the gimbal and the go fast video. Uh, it was at that time period when we recorded those objects, which were unique to us. Wow. Um, so uh, I, I saw the news accounts of those recordings, and I suppose I will fast forward to present day a little bit. So, well, so before we started this interview, I looked up how Americans think and feel about uh, the possibility of uh, life uh, on other planets, uh, what they think about. UFOs or UAPs, um, and it seems like the polling has it at something like two-thirds of Americans think that there's probably life somewhere out there, um, and, and I, I will say that I personally fall into that camp, uh, just if I think about the vastness of space and the almost infinite number of planets and then the extended time period, it seems highly unlikely that we would be the only <laughs> planet in this vastness that actually developed any form of an intelligent life. Uh, and then there's a smaller percentage who think that UFOs and UAPs are actually evidence of uh, extraterrestrial life. It's still very significant. Uh, it's something like 40 to 50% uh, think that it's probably tied into uh, extraterrestrial life. Uh, I have a feeling that both of those numbers have probably gone up in the last three months <laughs> because I, that there's just been a whole lot in the news recently. Uh, and you're now uh, actually, I'd say one of the preeminent voices on this because you've started this very benignly named uh, organization, which I appreciated a great deal, like Americans for Safer Aerospace, <laughs> to try to shed some light um, uh, on this. So let, let's just briefly discuss the recent news accounts. Um, so UAPs and UFOs have been all over the news over this last number of weeks. Uh, there's this Chinese spy balloon uh, story, but then it seems like the story is much bigger than that. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a series of events that just kind of kicked off, and it kicked off, as you said, with a very clear imagery of a Chinese spy balloon, or at least a, a a balloon with some payload uh, below it that was identified as originating from China, likely for intelligence gathering purposes. Um, shortly after that, um, over the course of the weekend, three other objects were shot down uh, in various areas across North America. Uh, and what was communicated uh, was a pretty clear bifurcation that the Chinese spy balloon and the other three objects were very distinct categories. There was the Chinese spy balloon and the other three objects, which are currently unidentified. And also um, 
the search for the remains of the objects have been uh, called off as well. Um, so they're a bit of a mystery. Why did we find these objects, you know, overhead? Well, it's what's been publicly communicated is that we essentially backed down the speed filters uh, on our defensive radar systems. And, you know, just very basically how these systems work is that they receive information, that information is cataloged according to various parameters, perhaps airspeed being one of them. Uh, and then that information is sent to the proper uh, processing agency. So what's that mean? Things that look like missiles go one place and things that you know look like uh, something else go somewhere else. But I don't know if we were looking for very slow speed objects. And once we, we brought those filters down, we started noticing other objects over our airspace that uh, again, as of this point, are not identified. Now, this all just occurred very recently. However, it's very reminiscent of the conversation I've been having um, since about uh, 2019 or so about uh, low or no speed objects operating off the eastern seaboard, uh, potentially uh, categorized as intelligence gathering platforms or potentially else based off of their uh, performance. But Regardless of what those three objects are, and I'm not claiming they are the same objects or they are not, we don't know. But yep. regardless, we're not as certain about what's above our heads as, uh, as we thought we were. And that's very clear now. We need to open up the aperture on what's above our airspace and not confuse the fact that seeing things drift along in the wind uh, that are potentially adversarial spy programs not to say everything that is going to fall into that same bucket that we're seeing, because what we're seeing are things that have, um, you know, more interesting, more challenging uh, behaviors to them that don't fit in those, you know, those balloon-like entity buckets. And that's not me saying that. That's the Department of Defense and the ODNI saying that through their UAP reports. The Ford Tour is coming to a city near you. That means I'm coming to a city near you. I'm heading to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Raleigh, Denver, and more in the spring. Go to FordParty.com to check out the upcoming dates or just check out my social media. Primarily Twitter, unfortunately. See you soon. So uh, it, it seems like if you retrace the mythology or, around these beliefs, uh, there was a point uh, earlier when I think it was um, a really suspicious international environment. There was like a Cold War and espionage. Um, uh, and so there is like this sense that there were a lot of secrets out there. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you also had a sense at that time that um, if someone were to evince something like uh, beliefs in, in UFOs, then it truly would be politically self-destructive or professionally self-destructive. And, and I feel like times might have shifted since then because uh, like that, there's almost like a greater openness to the fact that we might not know something or that institutions might not be playing it straight. Like what, what do you think about the direction of American – um, culture and the fact that now I think that we'd be open to things that uh, in the day we wouldn't have been. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, during the Cold War, it was a very much uh, fearful society, both uh, internally, where I think there was distrust between the branches and fear of Soviet, you know, internal spies in the government, as well as, you know, obviously a lot of international distrust 
and, and fighting. Um, so there, there was, you know, my understanding is that even more, not even more so, but in addition to that, there was also a fear that due to the high amount of UAP reporting or UFO reporting, that it was actually going to be uh, something that the Soviets could take advantage of by putting air assets into our airspace under the cover of uh, UFO clutter uh, and get caught up in, in too much reporting. And so one of the methodologies that was undertaken was to diminish and push down the reporting um, so that the systems weren't overwhelmed with anomalous objects and that, you know, airplanes and air threats could be identified. But, you know, that's a little historical context. But, you know, what we see today as society has adapted with our new tools and our technology and our ways of communicating, I feel like we're much more adaptable and flexible to changes in our society. Uh, we're also much more open to new ideas uh, and pushing past those kind of historical boundaries. And that's really, I think, what makes us exceptional. And that's what's going to move the conversation forward and why I think it hasn't just gone away. Because once we we're at a point in our society where we can latch on to an idea like this, and it's it's a powerful motivator, and people are really passionate about these ideas. And with the tools to communicate, you can't just shut that conversation down anymore. Um, and so I, I, I see this as a conversation that's going to continue to grow for that reason, because uh, people can find people with similar interest, and that's, that's what's happening. So you obviously have the most direct experience with uh, the eastern seaboard here in America, uh, the Navy, the DOD. Is this something that's happening worldwide uh, to the extent that you have exposure to pilots in uh, other parts of the world? Certainly. From from my understanding, historically, this conversation goes back, you know, let's just say since uh, the 50s or 60s, there's been reports uh, internationally of events occurring, not just from civilians, but from military and commercial pilots as well. Uh, I don't think that there's a complete enough picture on that. And there's some natural boundaries about what we want to share with our international partners and how we do that, you know, especially in the modern age here. But I think going forward, the way we really bring this conversation to something of a conclusion, if that even can be done, uh, is to really engage with the international community on this topic and say, hey, we invite you all to you know, help us figure this out because I don't think uh, America or one group within the United States uh, really has the authority to speak for the entire world to say it's none of you and it must be this. So I think we really need to bring in the international community and look at this um, as a globe and see where we can draw our conclusions then. Yeah, it could be a real opportunity for some kind of global, I don't hesitate to say unity, but at least uh, cooperation. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to explaining these phenomena, um, the most common explanations are equipment malfunction, which at this point I think you can rule out given the ubiquity because, you know, it's like happened over and over again. Uh, foreign military, domestic military, something civilian, or extraterrestrial? Are those like the the four major categories? Mostly, I would say instead of extraterrestrial, I would just throw it in the other bucket uh, because it starts. We start to you know bake in some assumptions if we look at things extraterrestrial. And the fact is, we have something anomalous, but we don't know what it is. People ask me all the time, you know, what do, what do you think it is? You know, yeah, what, sure. what is it really? And we're just not there. We're not at a point where we can necessarily draw conclusions on it. Now, you, you've, you've said it. it could be ours, it could be someone else's on this planet, or, or it could be something else that we haven't identified that is either from here or from somewhere else. But we have to continue to gather data about that before we can draw those conclusions. Um, we've had 
baked in assumptions in this conversation for so long, even with the name UFO, flying objects. Um, we've identified or we've updated the terms in the last uh, National Defense Authorization Act of 2023 uh, to have unidentified anomalous phenomenon because we, we have identified there there is an anomaly there. We don't know if they're flying or if they're, you know, in space or what domain, but we truly do have that mystery and we need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, some of the descriptions you have about uh, them just being still, even though there are gale force winds around them in a way that would be very, very difficult. I mean, it, it does seem truly anomalous and doesn't like doesn't seem like they're, yeah, they're like obeying the laws of physics sometimes. <laughs> at, least, at, least, at least that's the sense I get. It's confusing, you know. It, you're, they operate in a way that we're not expecting to see. So at first it's almost like, well, this is, must be some kind of software or something of that nature. But when you realize it corresponds to reality, um, it, it, it breaks your brain a little bit. <laughs> Uh, so you were uh, out there defending the country uh, in 2015, 2016, um, uh, and uh, you eventually stepped away uh, from the service uh, and went into private industry. What year was that? So I left the Navy uh, officially in uh, 2019, and I did have an. I left uh, the F-18 a little bit before that. I went to Meridian, Mississippi, as an instructor pilot. Uh, training students before they got to the F-18. And from there, I departed in 2019. So so you really were like, a, like you know, one of those flight instructors. Did you did, did you scare everyone? Did you talk about, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not talking about UAP, but generally, did you do like the drill sergeant routine? <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's not like that. It used to be like that. I'm actually remember being pulled out of a, a uh, flight simulator to do push-ups at one point because something was screwed up. Uh, but, you know, I think modern times, we understand those aren't the best uh, teaching mechanisms, especially when we're dealing with putting people into extremely highly stressful environments for the first time sometimes. And so uh, it's it's a real process and a real art to be able to give you know these students enough rope to hang themselves, but snatch it away at the last moment as well, because that's uh, unfortunately one of the best ways to learn sometimes. Uh, but I did that for about three and a half years uh, in Mississippi. And it's really the reason I, I think I ended up speaking out about this as I was getting out because, you know, the Navy trained me as an aviation safety officer. So they actually sent me down to Pensacola, Florida for five weeks to not just prevent mishaps from occurring in my squadron and to ensure safety standards are met, but should the worst happen, actually go out in the field, pick the pieces up and figure out what, what happened. Uh, and unfortunately I had to do that a couple of times. Uh, but I was sitting in the ready room in 2017 when I saw the New York Times article come out with the the gimbal video in it. And when I saw that, I said, you know, oh my gosh, I was there. That was the video. You know, I saw that. That was my buddy's voices, you know. Um, so it was, it was like, holy smokes. But then I was like, oh my gosh, like, I wonder if this is still happening. So I reached back to a lot of folks uh, that were still flying on the East Coast. And they're like, yes, this is still happening. You know, I left for my, we left for our deployment. I left that deployment to go become an instructor. So I never went back to the East Coast. Um, but some of my friends were, and I called them up and they're like, yeah, of course it's still happening. We have broad notice to airmen in the local region just to alert pilots that this is happening because we have no solution for this. And so that was a state of affairs was the best we could do. Um, and that's when I realized that this wasn't going to get resolved from the current internal channels. And that's when I, you know, made the internal decision 
to try to, you know, help where I could in this and whatever really means I could, because it was just a matter of time in my perspective that we had a midair. Uh, every other situation that we have somewhat similar to this, we would try to mitigate that factor the best we could. But for some reason, this one case, it was just something that we did not want to look at as a problem. Uh, we had no reporting mechanisms. We had, you know, no one paying attention to it. It was something we couldn't even talk about, you know, without laughing, really. Uh, and it was just a matter of time until we lost assets and lives. Well, uh, it, it's clear that you took your responsibility very seriously. I mean, you're literally teaching the next generation of pilots and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, like, you know, if, if this isn't resolved, I, I, one of these pilots could end up losing their lives because they have a collision uh, with one of these things because we're not properly documenting or accounting for them. And once we started documenting them, uh, we had 144 reports as of the first reporting by the UAP task force. And in that report, there were 11 near midairs. So that was 11 opportunities to lose at least one aircraft and perhaps two lives in that mishap. And was that reporting done uh, by the Department of Defense? Correct. That was done by the U.S. Navy. And technically, the report timeframe spans from 2004 until I believe 2019 or late 2018, uh, whenever they cut off. Uh, but the vast majority of those cases are from uh, 2018 onwards when the U.S. Navy started their official reporting program. Perfectly reasonable to me. I mean, e even if we don't know what these things are, we should be transparent about what we do know, which is, hey, there are these things, <laughs> and uh, we, we don't want to lose a plane or a pilot, so you know, we, we should uh, start being frank about it um, the way we are anything else that a pilot might run into. Mm -hmm. And we see this problem e even more so on the commercial side. On the military side, we have all the sensors and tools to give us more information, uh, but often the results of that is classified and things of that nature. On the commercial side, they don't have those tools, but what they do have their eyeballs and they have a lot of time looking out. And occasionally when they do see things, they are uh, discouraged from reporting it. Uh, they fear losing their medical certificate, which is not just your job, but your career. Um, wow. And no one wants to restart their career in their 40s. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of problems and things preventing commercial uh, air crew from, from feeling comfortable talking about this. And so I've done a few things to try to help that. First, uh, I've created the Merge Podcast, which is a platform for pilots to come and have a conversation with me, pilot to pilot, uh, that, you know, we're not going to try to draw conclusions or, you know, break down their experience in any great detail, but just to open it up and share what their experiences are on a trusted platform where the X-Files music isn't going to be playing in the background and they don't have to fear uh, losing their medical certificate because they're being embarrassed on national TV or something. Uh, and we've been seeing great success from that. Uh, additionally, um, with the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, uh, I've helped them uh, stand up an integration outreach committee on unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And so we have engineering efforts there uh, under that bucket um, that is working on our detection characterization and evaluation uh, methodology so that we can inform uh, the policy and procedure makers that we've brought together under that, uh, under that committee uh, to advise the airline, to advise the FAA, to advise uh, our federal government uh, on what the correct reporting procedures should be, what the correct safety procedures should be, and how we're going to learn more information about this. And then on the last side, the Americans for Safe Aerospace, I've recently founded this uh, issue uh, focus advocacy group to really attack the, uh, the issue where the most work can be done, which is on Capitol Hill. 
And so we're going to be pushing to uh, push for policy and legislation to ensure that those commercial pilots do have the ability to come forward and talk about this, and they don't fear losing their careers. We want to make sure that we just learned that Arrow, you know, hasn't been funded this whole time. Why are they, you know, why are senators and congresspeople signing up now to fund that office, right? We want to ensure these mechanisms are working correctly and we don't have to have shoot downs over U.S. airspace to get this conversation going. I like it a lot. Uh, if someone wants to be helpful to you uh, or keep up with your work or be supportive or let their congressman know, it's like, look, um, it, we should be mainstreaming the fact that uh, we don't know everything, but we know that there's something up and uh, we're not getting great information because everyone uh, thinks it's going to be professionally super detrimental to say what they saw. How can the average American help you in your work? The best way they can help right now is to go to safeaerospace.org and sign up for further updates. That's going to be the best vehicle for the average American to be able to stay informed on this topic, to stay educated on this topic, and to learn how they can help and, and push this topic with their elected representatives. Well, I think this is such a fascinating topic. I mean, at, at this point, we have to know that just having the ability to speak openly and plainly would be a massive uh Improvement, <laughs> I would say. Uh, full credit to you for taking the steps you've taken. It, it's very courageous, and I, I sense it's very selfless and patriotic on your part. Um, talking to you, I think just about anyone who's spent uh, the the last half an hour listening would regard you as just a like a completely objective, principled, uh, intellectually honest. A human um, and someone who's spent thousands of hours risking your life uh, in the air for our greater good. So uh, really just kudos to you for being um, so honest and patriotic. And I instinctively feel like what you're doing is going to end up uh, opening us up to different possibilities and uh, wind up being on the right side of history. I appreciate you saying all that, Andrew. At the end of the day, for me, this is very simple. It's either a national security, aviation safety issue, and we need to deal with that with the mechanisms we have, or it's something else, and we need to have the scientific integrity and the bravery to go look at it and explore it, regardless of the results. Bravery and uh, integrity, uh, I, again, mean, I sense that those are the kinds of things that guide you in your decision-making, and I, I think that we could all take a lot from it. Uh, Ryan, I can't wait for us to do this again after we know some more. <laughs> um, <laughs> Me too, Andrew. I can't wait. But congrats to you. You're on social media. Feel free to follow Ryan um, on his accounts and also check out Americans for Safer Aerospace. Uh, did you come up with that name yourself? Uh, it was a team effort. It was a team effort. Because I, I have to say, like, I, I could see the possibility. What were, what were the alts? What, like, what did you consider and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, disregard? Um, we, didn't, we didn't get too creative with the names. We stayed pretty mainstream. Um, but we, we really wanted to make sure that people understood that um, this isn't a, a fear-based discussion, that we, we don't want people to feel unsafe now. But there's just so much room for curiosity here. And it's just going to make us all stronger as a country and as a people. You know, I, I was chatting about this uh, with my wife. Um, and we concluded that any 
civilization that could project its technology this far afield, uh, if it winds up being sourced from uh, you know an- another planet, um, is so far ahead of us <laughs> that that that, that, um, that you'd imagine they're probably benign because they're just so. Uh, elevated. I mean, obviously, you know, like you have to be careful about crashing into one of their things <laughs> if, if that's what it turns out it is. But I, I think that kind of curiosity, like I, I actually find it kind of uplifting myself. I agree with you. I think it's a hopeful conversation. I don't think this is something that we should fear or, or be hesitant about. I, I take the tack that if something has perhaps taken the, gained the ability to travel across the stars and has been able to achieve such monumental things that they would have been able to solve their own differences by that point. Yeah, and maybe that can be something we can all strive to emulate. Uh, God knows we need it. <laughs> Ryan, appreciate the heck out of you, and hopefully we'll have a chance to meet in person. My pleasure, Andrew. I'm looking forward to it. Cheers. Cheers.